0: This is Ian Glenn, editor for State Current in Pediatric Surgery. This episode features Dr. Brad Warner from Washington University in St. Louis and St. Louis Children's Hospital. Dr. Warner will be discussing intestinal failure, including diagnosis, medical management, surgical therapy, and intestinal transplant. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. Stay Current is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Ian Glenn, and Sophia Abdulhai, and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. This is Todd Ponsky. From African Children's Hospital and today our audio chapter is going to be focusing on intestinal failure and with us we have definitely an expert in the area Dr. Brad Warner who is the Jesse L Turnberg MD PhD distinguished professor of pediatric surgery department of surgery at Washington University School of Medicine and surgeon-in-chief at St. Louis Children's Hospital Brad thanks for joining us today my pleasure This is certainly a a tough area, and I'm really actually anxious to talk to you about it. We just uh, recorded a chapter on necrotizing enterocolitis with Dr. Besner, and we kept alluding to intestinal failure but stopped short of really digging deep into it. So I'm glad we're going to have a chance to go into it today because I know a lot of people have questions about it. Let me just ask you, what is intestinal failure?
1: Well, it's uh, an umbrella term for... Uh, when the uh, small intestine is unable to absorb or digest enough nutrition to support the patient um, entirely by oral or enteral feeding. So, um, you know, a part of intestinal failure is uh, short gut syndrome whereby uh, the intestine has been removed uh, significant length or the baby's born with inadequate intestinal length to permit absorption digestion to maintain their body weight or to grow without the need for supplemental nutrition. Um, Other components of intestinal failure are really non-surgical and may be primary motility disorders like really long-segment Hirschsprung's disease, or mucosal diseases, uh, uh, some enteropathies and things like that, that uh, don't allow for normal nutrient uh, absorption digestion. Those would be under the same heading as intestinal failure, but really are not short gut syndrome.
0: Okay, so you know people are always throwing around numbers of specific length of the bowel and whether or not you have the ileocecal valve. What are your thoughts on those?
1: That's a great question. Um, We do know that the uh, intestine of a newborn uh, or of a fetus uh, essentially doubles in length in the last trimester of gestation. And so that's relevant when you take a 24-week or 25-week baby to the operating room and do a bowel resection for necrotizing enterocolitis. If you leave them with 20 or 25 centimeters, um, they're going to actually probably increase to at least 50 centimeters just on the basis of growth alone. And so that's very different than taking a uh, uh, an older kid, maybe a teenager, to the operating room who's had a midgut volvulus, um, and you leave them with 20 centimeters. It's unlikely they're going to grow significantly from that. So um, it really sort of comes down to what what are sort of cutoffs for when you declare someone uh, salvageable potentially, or potentially able to wean from nutrition by vein. So I sort of, for a neonate, I think probably if they have uh, an ileocecal valve and, and therefore their entire colon, that probably in the range of uh, 10 to 15 centimeters of small intestine hmm. would be, uh, you know, a ballpark figure. And, of course, there are a lot of other things that go into that decision-making Um you know, what's the social situation of the child? Is there coexisting uh, head bleeds and things like that? Um, But that's kind of the ballpark figure that I think of. Without the colon, without the ileocecal valve, I think at least uh, probably 15 to 20 range would be sort of a ballpark figure. And and again, it depends on how much uh, small intestine. We know in uh, adult studies, and uh, so these take away the element of, of children and the element of growth of their bowel that um adults with less than fifty centimeters of intestine, about forty of those patients, forty percent of those patients uh will not be alive after about five to ten years with that small amount of intestine length. So okay. um you know that's sort of an adult ballpark range and I think you can Move the length downward. The smaller the kid, and uh, depend on other features of intestinal adaptation to occur.
0: Okay, that's a it's a great ballpark, and um, a lot it definitely helps when you're coming out to talk to the parents about giving them some sort of idea of prognosis. Right. Let's take a baby with malrotation. So they have midgut mm-hmm. volvulus, uh, and you you do have let's say 15 centimeters of of bowel, and you do have an ileocecal valve. What do you expect is going to be the, the the natural history with this disease in this child now?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a tremendous question. And, uh, you know, I assume then that one would do everything potential to save as much intestinal length as possible. But, um, you know, someone with 15 centimeters of intestinal length in the entire colon, I would say probably I would expect long term 50 percent of those kids should be able to wean from TPN other 50%, it's going to be split between those that uh, would require uh, an an intestinal and or uh, liver transplant. And the other 25% of that entire group then would probably die as a result of their shortcut syndrome.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, and what I'm sort of quoting to you is the Data from the Pediatric Intestinal Failure Research Consortium that was published uh, a few years ago now, but uh, looking at the long-term consequence of children that are on TPN for you know more than several months as a result of short syndrome, about 25% die, 25% uh, need a, a transplant, and uh, 50% of those can wean off of TPN.
0: And is is the most common cause of death sepsis?
1: You know, um, it's a combination of factors. Liver failure is one very important thing. Another is septic episodes from the central line and or from their bacterial overgrowth that occurs in the bowel. Uh, Sometimes it could be variceal bleeding, you know, from their uh, liver disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, loss of IV access due to requiring multiple central lines in different sites and no longer have the ability to provide reliable, consistent access
0: what do you tell the parents is usually how long they'd have to wait uh, to, to get the baby size-wise or age-wise to be a candidate for a small bowel transplant?
1: I think it's reasonable uh, to understand that intestinal adaptation occurs after small bowel resection and that in humans um, it probably takes place over about a year or two.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if they're achieving enteral autonomy prior to that, that's great. And, you know, I think the goals of management of children that have short gut syndrome from a, an acute uh, massive enterectomy um, would be to wean as much TPN as you can and push the enteral feeding to the point that uh, you can ultimately get them off of TPN. That's that's the real goal. And in doing that, I, I would accept stool outputs of up to 40 cc's per kilo per day. That's when I would say you're hitting the limits by which you should, you know, back off on your enteral feeding. Okay. But if you are continually improving, albeit slowly, and you're not really hitting any sort of uh, ceiling in terms of uh, worsening Rubens or multiple septic episodes and things, then keep going. And I, and I would say, too, that it, it would not be unusual that, depending on the length of the intestine, that it would take a year or two.
0: Let me take you through some uh, patients here and, and help guide me on what goes through your head here. So uh, let's first start off with what would you say are the most common reasons that children develop short gut syndrome?
1: So um, I think the top ones would be necrotizing enterocolitis, mm-hmm. uh, gastroschisis, mm-hmm. uh, mid-gut volvulus, and mm-hmm. atresias. And, okay. uh, and then, you know, further on down would be, you know, trauma and uh, um, inflammatory bowel disease, those types of things.
0: Okay. Let, let's say, um, Brad, now you have a, a patient that uh, had a closed gastroschisis. They have short gut. They had a primary anastomosis. Let's say they had uh, two open ends that had a, uh, through the umbilicus, they were closed primarily or uh, reanastomosed. And you have, let's say, a G-tube in. Mm-hmm. Um, what goes through your head? What do you consider now? How do you start with this baby that you know has short gut with the medical management of this child and, and advancing their feeds and all these different things?
1: Well, the most important thing is you've got to provide sufficient calories for growth. And so originally that would start with nutrition by vein. And, uh, you know, I think probably uh, with regard to the TPN, we shoot for about 100 to 120 calories per kilo per day. For total calories, uh, about 50% of that's going to be glucose calories, and um, and then the remainder will be fat and uh, protein. Generally shoot for about 2 to 3 grams of protein per kilo per day and uh, about 2 to 3 grams of fat per kilo per day. Um, when you're advancing on the uh, – or when patients are on long-term TPN – I think uh, some of the things that we want to try to do is begin enteral feeding as soon as uh, it's feasible, and uh, that would be, you know, after your resection and reanastomosis and they start stooling, um, that would be the time to initiate. Uh, And I I generally start with a slow continuous drip as opposed to bolus feeds. Um, I think that with a continuous drip, and this is kind of my more opinion, but I think the nutrient transporters are upregulated and I think your ability to get more nutrition in maybe uh advantageous. The people that sort of push for oral feedings, uh, I think it's equally valid that you can stimulate uh a lot of gastrointestinal secretions and things that are vaguely mediated that might also help uh, absorb and digest better. So um I sort of get a combination. I, I Generally, most of their calories enterally are through a continuous drip, but I do allow the babies to to feed orally whatever they can. The things that I would be continually doing then would be uh, making sure that they're gaining weight. And Mm -hmm. uh, you want a baby uh, to gain about 20 to 30 grams uh, a day. That sort of approximates in utero accretion for a, a newborn. And lack of weight gain or weight loss is concerning to me that we're not getting enough calories in. And so I would increase the the calories by TPN and, uh, and obviously keep pushing the enteral calories. And if you achieve a stool output that's greater than uh, 40 per kilo per day, you've got to back down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but constantly keep pushing that. And, and I also am watching carefully the bilirubin levels mm-hmm. and, um, if they should start to get jaundiced um then i think you've got to you've got several options to consider and um uh, one of those would be and i think in the united states now we tend to do a lipid reduction strategy where we take them from 2 to 3 grams per kilo per day of fat that's given every day down to about 1 gram per kilo per day delivered twice or three times a week hmm. um and that's um i think been very effective in reducing the um uh cholestasis that occurs in association with tpn
2: hmm.
1: um the downside of that is uh you know you're really taking away um uh the amount of essential amino acids that they're getting and babies that are growing obviously are laying down a lot of myelin and uh brain and uh and uh not having those uh amino or not having that, that type of uh fat is uh, potentially disadvantageous. So there's been a new um, 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 sort of approach, uh, not particularly new, been around for probably eight or nine years, is the use of Omegavin, which is a uh, fish oil-based fat. The uh, usual intralipid that we use is uh, soybean-based, and that's... uh, Primarily omega-6 fatty acids, and those are felt to be pro-inflammatory. The uh, fatty acids that are in the fish oil or the omega-ven are primarily omega-3 fatty acids, and those are considered to be more anti-inflammatory. So there has been um, a lot of push to use omega-ven, and it's actually used in uh, countries outside of the United States instead of fish, instead of the soy-based uh, formulations. And uh, when you introduce those to children that are getting jaundiced, uh, there has been demonstrated significant fall in their jaundice levels getting the fish oil. Okay. Now, the downside of fish oil is it doesn't contain the essential fatty acids that are felt to be important for um, for babies that are growing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, kind of in the middle has been uh, something that I understand has recently been approved by the FDA for use in the United States is this SMOF lipid, S-M-O-F. And uh, that actually has a combination of a lot of things. So the S stands for soybean-based lipid, which contains the essential fatty acids. The M is medium-chain triglycerides, which are more easily digested. Uh, the uh, SM and the O is olive oil, Mm
2: -hmm. and the
1: F is fish oil. And so that combination of those four elements then, I think maybe the most ideal circumstance uh, to provide not only essential fatty acids, but uh, medium-chain triglycerides, better digestible, as well as the uh, omega-3 and omega-6 combination that Uh, I think probably is a little bit more physiologic. And the SMOF, I think, has actually become the most commonly used uh, lipid modality for children in Canada. And uh, I think now recently it's become FDA approved in the United States, and so I think we might be hearing more and and using more of that in the future.
0: Okay. So I want to see if I can recap what you just said uh, number one, so the baby c- comes up from surgery. Once they're recovered from surgery and have return of bowel function, you will start a continuous drip starting at a slow rate, probably at one cc an hour or something like yes. that. Uh-huh. And and you go up at a frequency of, of how often? Um,
1: I would probably go slow, probably uh, double that in a in, at least in a couple of days. Okay. And uh, and then double that again, um, or maybe go up by 50% um, after another couple of days. Really guided by the stool output. Yep. And I really want to find out where we're we're hitting the ceiling. And once we do, I back down a little bit, let their stool output chill, and then I give them a week or two, and then try again. Okay. And constantly keep trying to see because I do know that they're undergoing this process of intestinal adaptation Mm -hmm. and uh, that's very very important and you know we see it structurally that they're growing taller villi and deeper crypts and they're increasing the absorptive and digestive surface area per unit length of their intestine and we know this is occurring not only structurally but it's occurring physiologically And that babies that stool out at two mils an hour um, are now up to six mils an hour a few months later and uh, not stooling out. So that's, I think, both the structural and functional uh, features of adaptation.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So, and and I do like the number you use of 40 cc's per kilo of stool output as your gauge of you need to back off a little bit.
1: Right, right.
0: Okay. Okay. and then your formula of choice i know you mentioned the omega van or the smof but what about your the other formula
1: you know i think breast milk is uh, uh if you know if you're in a uh, newborn situation um is probably the very best um mm-hmm. uh, because it not only contains what the baby needs in terms of the proper fat and and all of that but it's uh uh it has other things in there that are really um i think from an investigative standpoint very rich to explore uh one of which are the growth factors that are present such as uh epidermal growth factor and um, insulin insulin like growth factors and all of those things that really probably do promote adaptation um which is very very important also there's some milk oligosaccharides that um are being demonstrated now to enhance adaptation they have a lot of other features that uh, I think improve uh, nutrient digestion, absorption, and uh, and things that are important for the uh, neonatal gut. So there's a lot of things that are in breast milk that I think make it my number one choice if it's available for DNA. Okay. Um, otherwise, I don't use elemental formulas for older kids or anything like that. I think that uh, in theory you, you may have... Uh, a better ability to absorb the elemental but i think also there is evidence to suggest that complex uh, um, formulas fed enterally may actually stimulate adaptation a little bit better mm-hmm. so you know they they cause you to uh, uh secrete uh, enterotrophic hormones um to greater extent and that may be more that may be much better for promoting adaptation. So I I tend to not uh, use, um, you know, these uh, very minimalist type of uh, dipeptide types of things, and I I tend to use more complex.
0: Interesting. It's good to sort of challenge the gut a little bit. Absolutely. I I want to ask you a question about something that we've encountered is, as you're trying to uh, start enteral feeding, and and let's say you, you haven't reached that, 40 cc per kilo stool output. So in, in theory, they're tolerating what you're giving them, but you're not seeing growth. Uh, and now you, you sort of have to decide. So you sort of have to go up on your TPN. Right. Uh, but how do you deal with the volume now? Because you're giving them, do you back off the enteral feeding or keep both going? No,
1: I definitely keep that going. And in okay. fact, if they haven't hit the 40 uh, in stool output, I would do that first before going up on the uh parenteral nutrition.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Um, I mean, you, you obviously want to support growth, and you can do that with TPN or enteral, and I would prefer enteral as long as they're tolerating it to keep pushing that, because I think the advantages of the enteral is that um, you're, you're reducing the amount of TPN that's needed, and therefore, if there's any injurious component of TPN, you're reducing and mitigating that. And I think there is a threshold, although I don't know Um, the exact number of what percent of enteral calories uh, prevent the uh, onset of liver damage from the TPN. And I know there is a certain percentage, um, and I know uh, if you're on, you know, 90% enteral feeding versus 10% enteral feeding, you're going to have a far less risk of, um, you know, TPN-related cholestasis if you're at 90% enteral. So I always push the enteral first.
0: Okay. Let's say now, let's say six months have passed and you've got the baby on probably half of their goal of enteral feeding, the other half on TPN. At what point do you start thinking of surgical intervention?
1: That's a great question. So at six months, you still are in the phase at which they could be continuing to adapt. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so um, I would say keep pushing with your enteral feeds. And as long as you're able to slowly increase and uh, reduce your TPN amount, then you're headed in the right direction. And as I said before, I'd give that, uh, if you're on that, you know, the the curve is upward, keep pushing it and uh, anticipate that that could take a year or two. Um, My time that I would be starting to think about doing lengthening procedures or intervening surgically would be is if you hit a point enterally and now you start backing away. In other words, if you were tolerating 50% enteral um, a month ago, but now you're down to 20% enteral, Hmm. um, if you're going backward rather than forward, that would be the time that I would start thinking about uh, an intervention. The other would be if there was uh, multiple episodes of uh, sepsis along with um, abdominal distension and evidence of really dilated bowel loops. Okay. Um, and that would be another sort of reason to think about it. And then the third would be is if the child is starting to get jaundiced. Now, you can mitigate that by um, the altering the lipid intake in their, uh, you know, parenteral nutrition. But um, I think there's also a role to uh, evaluate the gut when they're starting to get these jaundiced episodes because there could be some subclinical um, portal, bacteremia and things that... Uh, arise as a consequence of the dilated bowel loops. So I I think probably dilated bowel loops are are one central theme here um, that can be responsible not just for the sepsis episodes but for inability to tolerate enteral feeding. They get bacterial overgrowth and they actually have diarrhea. Uh, It's a secretory diarrhea um, that has really not as much to do with how they're progressing in terms of their digestion absorption capacity. But because they've got dilated bowel loops and bacterial overgrowth, their enzymes are not able to work as well. So that's the point I would sort of stop and say, okay, now it's time to interrogate the bowel. And I would start with the plain abdominal radiographs. And I think with that, you can get a sense of whether there's a lot of dilated bowel loops with gas. And, uh, you know, if it's a gasless abdomen, that's very different than... uh, uh, you know, a bunch of balloon animals versus a focally uh, big dilated bowel loop. And then I think after that, you want to interrogate them both from above and below with uh, contrast studies. So I would do an enema from below and make sure that they don't have something kind of uh, simple going on, like an uh, adhesive band, an obstruction, that an anastomosis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are the things that will prevent you from, you know, obviously moving up on your enteral feeding and uh, that those types of things also promote bowel dilation and potential sepsis so you know that would be something easily correctable that uh, you don't want to go in thinking you're going to do a lengthening procedure and find just an adhesive band or something so um, and then study them from above to get a gauge of what their transport time is and uh, get a sense of kind of what their length looks like Um, so if I saw a child in those circumstances that was starting to get jaundiced or a kid who was actually backing up on the amount of enteral feeding that they were tolerating, then I would study them. If they had dilated bowel loops, and what I generally would use is more than 4, four to 5 centimeters of bowel dilation, and uh, they're they're really going nowhere with advancing enteral feeds or they're going backward, uh, I think that would be the time to intervene surgically.
0: Okay, and I just want to to... Clarify. So, in a child who, let's say, is now three years old, and is not backing, backing, going the wrong direction at all, but just not progressing, uh, you don't move on to uh, lengthening procedures in them. Typically, if
1: if it's if, really been three years and mm-hmm. they're they have completely stable, yeah, um, I would interrogate their bowel. Okay, and uh, if they had dilated bowel. Yeah, uh, I think I would take advantage of that to go forward with trying to lengthen them to hopefully get them off of TPN.
0: Great. Got it. Okay, so that helps. So again, so it's jaundiced, uh, abdominal descension with dilated loops, or actually going backwards in their enteral feeding, or just someone who, after several years, is just not progressing and happens to see that they have dilated loops on X-ray. Is that a Correct. good summary? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Good. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So let's say you have that child. Let's say they're uh, two years of age. They're starting to go backwards in their feeding and starting to develop some uh, cholestatic jaundice. And you get an X-ray, and you see, uh, let's say, a couple dilated Bowel loops, and you get your contrast study from below, which shows no point of obstruction, and your contrast study from above shows confirms dilated loop with somewhat uh, areas of delayed motility, but things go through fine. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what? So, uh, at that point, I would offer the uh, family a laparotomy, and um, you know, I would sort of make my determinations intraoperatively. Uh, what I would do, but okay. in general, I think uh, if you're going in with the intent of doing a lengthening procedure, you uh, sort of have to have some ideas in your mind what you think is um, adequate amount of bowel length and uh, what's worth uh, lengthening and what's not. So, in terms of bowel length, I believe that if um, you go in and you find a child has over 100 centimeters of intestine, we know that. Um, Less than five or ten percent of those patients should require TPN, and so it would start making me think that there might be some other underlying problem that, no matter what their length is, they're they're maybe not going to have enough, and that there's maybe a motility problem, or a, uh, a mucosal uh, aneropathy type of thing going on. So, I keep that in the back of my mind. With a hundred centimeters of intestinal length and the bowel not being super dilated. Uh, i'm I'm not completely convinced that there's a lot that you can do surgically for those kids okay, but let's say you get in there and you find less than a hundred uh let's say less than fifty and you 've got bowel that's at least four to five centimeters of intestinal length. I think then you 've got an option of either doing a uh Bianchi intestinal lengthening procedure or a step procedure, the serial transverse enteroplasty. Now, before you continue,
0: uh, let me make sure I understand one thing. So you go in and you see, let's say, 70, 60 60 centimeters of bowel. And when you said the 4 to 5 centimeters, you're talking about how dilated the bowel is? That's right. Got it. Okay, so you go in and you see uh, it's dilated. Okay. Sorry.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's dilated, it's short, and uh, I think at this point you have a couple of options. Uh, The serial transverse enteroplasty or the STEP procedure or a Bianchi procedure. Um, I think, honestly, the step procedure has emerged to be the most commonly uh, performed operation in these circumstances now. Um, the Bianchi um, is uh, a little bit more technically challenging to do, mm-hmm. um, although the last two lengthening procedures I've done have been Bianchis, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't sincerely tell you why I felt like I wanted to do a Bianchi versus mm-hmm. a step So uh, Bianchi procedure takes advantage of the fact that the blood supply coming to the bowel wall from the mesentery actually bifurcates before it gets to the intestine. So uh, there's a V going to the base of the uh, bowel containing each arm, the blood vessels. And in the crotch of that V, therefore, is an area that's avascular uh, right underneath the bowel. And you're able to staple across that as well as the top of the bowel to create two tubes of bowel each tube then is supplied by one arm of that v that branching blood supply and um i think the uh it's 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 a little bit more difficult to get into the proper plane of the uh bowel when you're using a stapling device and and doing a longitudinal uh division of the bowel but once you're in it it actually is not uh not uh, incredibly difficult. And uh, and then you sew the two ends of those two new tubes together to essentially double the length of the bowel uh, mm-hmm. for as long as you've stapled it.
0: And Brad, do uh, you start your Bianchi at where the bowel be- starts becoming dilated? Yes. yes. Okay.
1: I start it proximally and uh, you curve in from one side and then curve out the other side and then do a single anastomosis. Okay. Um otherwise you can completely transect the bowel at the proximal and distal ends and then make your two tubes that way and then do two anastomoses.
0: Right. So, okay, got it. And more
1: frequently I try to do the one and end up doing the two because I get confused, but uh, okay.
2: <laughs> regardless,
1: that's that's the longitudinal lengthening procedure, the Bianchi procedure. The step procedure is really an ingenious procedure that H.B. Kim came up with at, now at Boston Children's, came up with this, I think, when he was in medical school. But hmm. basically, it's cutting uh, partially across the bowel on one side and cutting partially across the bowel from the other side and alternating that so that you create these channels within the bowel and uh, it actually effectively reduces the caliber of the bowel also, but it also increases the length that the uh, nutrient would uh, come into contact with mucosal surface. So it's going down these channels that are zigzagging as opposed to a straight tube of dilated bowel. Um, and people, I think, have had way more experience with the Bianchi recently because, or with the uh, STEP procedure because it is very easy to do, um, there's less risk of injuring the blood supply to the uh, mesentery and things because you're really only cutting across at right angles, uh, partially across the bowel. So um, I think most people are doing those. I tend to, uh, I've had a few instances where uh, a step procedure had been done previously and uh, we know that the step can re-dilate. And that you have to redo a step, and um, and I think when when that happens, the uh, uh, outcomes overall long term are not as good as if you never have to redo a step. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an issue that uh, you know really sort of warrants a little bit of, of work. Um, you can do a Bianchi and then go back in and do another step on mm-hmm. top of a Bianchi. You can't do a Bianchi once a step has been done.
0: I was waiting for you to say that because I think that's a huge point to make.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Although having said that, um, we did a Bianchi recent where a step had been done, but it hadn't been done adequately. In other words, it it didn't go across even 50% of the bowel.
0: So you were still able to do a Bianchi?
1: We were able to do a (laughs) Bianchi through that area, but that bowel was very dilated And the other thing that I've seen with some steps is that they have uh, dysmotility. Um, And I think of a a, a child who had a a step procedure done um, at the neonatal period, and uh, this child had had an ileal atresia. And she actually had a reasonable amount of intestinal length, but had that dilated bulb of ileal atresia, which was stepped, And uh, she was put into continuity. And she honestly was on TPN for years. Uh, She had no good ability to tolerate enteral feeding. Her bowel proximally was very dilated. And the gastroenterologist who referred to me said that, uh, you know, we needed that she had a primary dysmotility. And that, uh, you know, so we explored her. And I'll never forget in the operating room, looking at this step, which looked like a bunch of gnarled up hamburger in the distal bowel, and the bowel proximal was very dilated, and it was of sufficient length. And so the GI folks came into the OR, and we really debated because they wanted me to uh, remove the proximal dilated bowel, thinking that that was the source of the sepsis and problems and dysmotility. And I really made it a point to say that I think it's the step that is acting as a break you know, mm-hmm. and they ended up letting me take out the distal bowel. Well, uh, they didn't let me. We all agreed, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, cooperatively for me to remove the distal bowel, and I did, and she completely weaned off of TPN. Wow. Okay. So that makes me feel like steps are not uh, as innocuous as uh, as we think they are, and because of that, I, I don't know, I tend to lean a little bit more as a primary to do a Bianchi, and yep. if I have to redo something, I might it, I might do it as a step. Then
0: I'm really glad you're, you're saying that, and I, I, I think that you're right. The easiness of the step makes it an appealing procedure, but I think a lot of advantages the Bianchi. And so, what can you tell us? What are if people are going to try a Bianchi? What are the pitfalls? How can you mess it up?
1: Well, obviously, not getting in the proper plane. So. Mm-hmm if you uh, are stapling down and you're not and you're off the midline of the undersurface of the bowel uh you really can mess up the blood supply to that uh, other tube of bowel now having said that there is i believe a case report in the literature whereby that happened and um unfortunately you know you make two tubes of bowel you have to take out the other tube because it died
2: mm-hmm. but
1: when they uh reanastomose, that single tube remaining, the patient actually improved.
2: <laughs> oh, really?
1: So, Yeah. Oh. So it makes you wonder, is it the bowel dilation and reducing right. that?
0: Not or the is extra. it really that you're yeah.
1: doubling the length?
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's really not known. But I think that is a very important thing. The other thing is, you know, when you're doing your uh, reanastomosis of the bowel, it can be um, a little more tortuous um, if you tend to do the anastomosis in a you know, end-to-end uh, way above the mesentery. So some little tricks have been to create a window in the mesentery to bring the bowel underneath the more proximal bowel and do your anastomosis uh, hmm. sort of transmesenteric. And that can sometimes take away an acute angulation and uh, make it look a little bit more uh, neat. Okay. I guess the other thing is you can get really disoriented and so an isoperistaltic segment to an antiperistaltic yep. and and I think that could really be a problem.
2: So you have to be um, careful
0: to mark your end so you know which yes, is proximal distal. absolutely.
1: Okay. And uh, the final thing is it's a long staple line. And if the bowel is real thick, you might, and I haven't done this um, often, but, um, you know, I tend to squeeze stuff along the staple line. And if there's any leak, I reinforce that with some Lemberts. Good and, point. Uh, okay. Yeah. So those are the caveats from my standpoint for that.
0: So the case that you just talked about where you, that one case report where they removed the ischemic segment and the patient got better, is there? does that make an argument for tapering?
2: You know, of, that's a yeah.
1: great, great point. I would, I would taper a child who had dilated bowel who had at least 90 to 100 centimeters of intestinal length. Okay. If got it, it was just dilated and uh, appears to be of sufficient length, then that's an absolute time that I would taper. Okay, great. Absolutely.
0: Brad, you had talked earlier about TPN-related cholestasis and some strategies you can use to try to minimize that or mitigate the risk of that. What right. about once it's developed, what strategies can you use to improve the cholestasis?
1: Well, I think some people have used um, um, bile salts, chenodeoxycholic acid, as a means to improve bile flow. Um, other things that we talked about, you know, changing the lipid composition yep. that you're delivering, um, increasing the amount of enteral feeds, obviously. Um, there's really not a lot of good data. I know Dan Teitelbaum, uh, rest his soul, um, mm-hmm. actually did a, a, a trial of uh, providing cholecystokinin as a, a way to promote bile flow and mitigate uh, TPN cholestasis. And unfortunately, that didn't work. So I think those are the major things. And I think the, the other big thing would be to consider the fact that, uh, if the bowel is dilated, that, uh, that's a nidus for infection and that that, uh, is probably encouraging translocation of bacteria and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of endotoxin and things like that into the portal circuit, which is damaging the liver and that's contributory. So I think, uh, You know, if if the bowel is dilated and and they're starting to get jaundiced, um, I think that would be an indication then to to taper that bowel or or lengthen it.
0: How do you medically manage or prevent or minimize the chance of bacterial overgrowth?
1: That's a great question, Um, and I don't think that there's a lot of good data. People will try uh, oral antibiotics, giving them cipro and flagyl or singly or in combination uh Others have tried probiotics as a means to feed the uh uh you know, or as a means to really provide you know lactobacilli and things that are felt to be beneficial and knock out the uh uh enteropathogenic, uh types of organisms in the bowel and um there's maybe a role for prebiotics administration of things that feed the good bacteria and uh and and you know not feed the bad bacteria. Um, there might be a role for fecal transplantation, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, taking you know stool from a healthy baby with normal gut length and uh, instilling that into the GI tract of a baby that's having uh, uh, overgrowth type issues. Um, I think getting to the root of the cause of the over overgrowth, and that to me is the dysmotility and the dilated bowel. Um, is is probably more important. What we're learning, too, it's interesting that the bacteria that change in the gut in patients with short gut syndrome really becomes a, uh, I would hate to, you know, I don't really want to cast this as me saying this is exactly what happens, but it is is, is like an obesogenic microbiome.
2: Mm-hmm. In
1: other words, the bacteria that change in these babies with short gut syndrome the gut bacteria become more efficient and and, uh, um, are able to help adapt by encouraging greater absorption digestion. Interesting. Yeah, so I do think there's a role potentially for manipulating the gut microbiome in these patients to mitigate uh, bacterial translocation and things. We actually um, had a couple of uh, papers recently, and this is in our animal work, but if you do bowel resections in mice and, and follow them long-term, they start to get uh, steatosis in their liver. And uh, we provided them with oral vancomycin to knock out the gram-positive uh, organisms that tend to bloom in patients with short gut syndrome. And we completely prevented the uh, bacterial or the uh, hepatic steatosis in the uh, mice that were fed oral vancomycin that uh, did not absorb the vanc. It's, it's completely enterally limited. Now, in contrast with that, we had a paper at AAP this past year that uh, the same effect was true in uh, mice that had uh, TLR4 deficiency, which is the receptor for endotoxin. If you knock that out, it also prevents them from getting bacterial uh, or hepatic steatosis associated with intestinal resection. So I think there's a role for both gram positive and gram negative organisms. Hmm. Uh, So I think that's the. That's sort of the the confusing sort of thing, but it's a lot of work, yeah, yeah, a lot of <laughs> stuff in the o r or in the uh uh lab for us to sort out,
0: yeah, I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> you talked about the gut microbiome. what about um any work of regarding growth factors?
1: We are um fortunate in that there has been a uh, a new agent um that is um Basically, it's a GLP-2 analog. It's called GADX, or to-do glutide. And um, this is a uh, growth factor that's been sort of recently uh, described, and uh, it's actually been subjected to randomized prospective clinical trials uh, in adults. And administration of this growth factor in adults has been demonstrated to weaned the amount of TPN significantly that the adults with short gut syndrome required. Uh, It took away about a liter or two per week of TPN that they required. And so I think that really is opening the door for the consideration of growth factors. Um, It's not yet approved for children in the United States. Uh, There are some uh, trials uh, that uh, are going to start looking at this. I think some of the concerns with growth factor administration to children is potentially the malignancy risk because many of these growth factors promote proliferation, and uh, the question always becomes then how long do you administer it, uh, what's the best way to give it, is there a way to target it just to the gut, and if you if you did that, are you promoting potential neoplasia in the gut and those types of things? I think those are the big concerns. Mm-hmm. But to do glutide, GLP2 uh, analog has been the biggest one. We've been able to demonstrate, uh, not just us, but other laboratories have been able to demonstrate uh, that administration of several growth factors actually promote a better adaptation response, at least in animal studies. And these include things such as epidermal growth factor. Um, Gail Besner's demonstrated it with HB-EGF. Uh, um, we've seen it with uh, several of the interleukins. We've seen it with... Uh, Uh, growth hormone glutamine combinations in patients Uh, the growth hormone glutamine is probably the most old growth factors that have been uh, administered and and i think the results of that are primarily mixed Um, it hasn't been a huge advance in the amount of uh, tpn that you can wean and uh, and it's expensive so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: we've been actually working with a uh, um uh, plant Science Center here at Danforth Plant Science Center at Washington University, and they've developed for us a transgenic soybean that overproduces EGF. And so uh, potentially we might have an EGF formulation, uh, like a formula, enteral wow. feeding formulation, that may promote adaptation with this growth factor in that. So That's hopefully exciting, more to come uh-huh. on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Still a lot of work, though.
1: Absolutely.
0: So uh, the last thing I want to ask you is, uh, if all of these interventions fail and and the patient does seem to be not progressing and may be a candidate for intestinal transplantation, what do you tell the parents is the prognosis and the long-term survival with that?
1: Right now, uh, the survival for small bowel transplant is about 50 to 60% at five years. Hmm. So the early uh, outcomes have been markedly improved. Um, I think one-year survivals now are above 70, 80 percent, which is really very, very good. But, um, you know, the intestine itself is such an immunogenic organ. It's filled with all kinds of white cells and macrophages and and, uh, all sorts of things that um, mount a huge graft-versus-host response to the recipient. And so you have to really uh, uh, put these patients on really – industrial strength dosages of immunosuppression which then makes them at higher risk for um you know malignancies and uh and uh, really reduces their ability to fight infections and so then it's sort of this balance between GVH versus rejection and um and that's what really I think is the most difficult thing so nice. a lot to be learned in that regard
0: yeah i didn't i didn't realize that the uh that the results were that poor uh, yes. I mean, yes. so so. given that, uh, touching on something you'd uh, hit on before, when should we be considering that and calling our transplant surgeon for evaluation for a transplant?
1: You know, I would say it's probably uh, regionally dependent. Um, you know, if you're in a community where intestine transplantation is not being performed and Uh, it would require the family driving to a center and being evaluated and everything um, versus, you know, being part of your medical center already and having them just drop down. I'd say if they're close by, probably early just to talk about it and so that the family can understand. And, you know, it's sort of like uh, prenatal consultations that it's good to sort of give them some of the facts and and things uh, while they're of sound mind and not having to make decisions under duress. Um I think that's always helpful. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, probably at any point you start thinking about it is probably a reason to uh at least get them into the uh uh discussion and get get them to meet. I I would not go to transplant um without I think you want to try to do everything you can to avoid transplantation. Okay. Um I I do think that with the uh, role for intestinal lengthening procedures and the various sort of things that we can do for mitigating uh, liver damage. The other thing that we didn't talk about yet, but a very important component, um, is controlling the sepsis, catheter sepsis. And I think uh, ethanol locks Mm -hmm. for central lines, I think, is a very important thing that has reduced significantly the number of episodes of sepsis uh, in patients with short gut syndrome that have broviac catheters and things i think that's really been uh, a nice uh, improvement.
0: Brad, but, do you do uh, that prophylactically or only for treatment?
1: Uh we've been doing it prophylactically for kids that are on home TPN.
0: Okay. I, I just want to hit on this again one more time just to make sure i got it. What i'm hearing what i've learned here is, you know, i have for example, i have patients who are in their teens who are dependent on TPN. And I always wonder, you know, at what point do I say it's okay to just exist on TPN or we should consider small bowel transplant? And that's always been tough for me. Yeah, I think that's –
1: I could see that is a very tough thing. I think if they're doing well um, and they're not jaundiced, um, doing it for the sake of getting them off of TPN – maybe a bit premature if they're mm-hmm. if they're otherwise doing well. And Great. I say that because you're taking someone who's stable and doing fine and now putting them in a category of fifty percent five year survival. Exactly.
0: And then that's so, the, the big thing yeah. I learned today from you is uh that is really only if there's a real problem last ditch resort. Yes,
1: yes. Okay. That that should be the last ditch. And I think lengthening procedures, doing all the things that we talk about, ethanol locks, everything you can do from a rehabilitation standpoint is really key. And I think the other important thing is that this is a multidisciplinary effort. This is a team sport in taking care of these patients. So having pharmacists, having nutritionists, having surgeons, having GI doctors, really all together, ID folks, uh, you know, radiology and everything, interventional radiology, Um, is really key for improved survival. And I think it's been demonstrated in many series, Boston, uh, Michigan, um, Texas, that these multidisciplinary teams um, really do improve the survival of these kids. So one person trying to do all of that is is probably not going to be as good. I think there's always value in having many different disciplines weigh in.
0: Well. Uh, I think of all the points you made, that was probably the most important, is get the team involved. So, uh,
1: yeah.
0: Brad, I really appreciate you uh, spending this uh, this hour with us, going over something that's not easy for for a lot of us and has a lot of complexity to it. Was well, my uh,
1: pleasure. I hope
0: I helped. Absolutely, you certainly helped me. Fantastic. So, all right. Uh,
2: <laughs> well, thank
0: you again, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.